Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome, Formula One consumers, and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. I'm Mark Hamilton, and joining me as always is my deliriously cheerful co-host, Mr. Mark Daly. My friend, I've got a couple other things to preamble on about, but how are you doing on this beautiful Thursday night? Oh man, it's uh, I'm doing great. Yeah, I'm really enjoying the fall so far. And man, just to getting ready for the show tonight, I was I just realized that I hate it when some of my other interests like combine or sort of com- they they get in the way of uh, you know doing other things. I was trying to sit down and really enjoy the uh, Thursday night football game. But, you know, it just wasn't happening because I was, you know, I had the kids running around. I'm trying to get ready for the podcast. But uh, it was uh, it was really, really good. And I was just trying to pull up a, a little funny kind of interesting thing here and just about it. I was thinking about it because uh, New York football giants are playing the the Washington football team. And I thought it was really interesting, so really, you know, especially in the context of the times that we live in and the fact that uh, the Washington football team, you know, formerly known as the Redskins, have been without a name for the past uh, year, right? So it was interesting because I I was reading up about it uh, just a a little bit uh, earlier this week, and I wanted to see, well, what's going on? What, you know, are are they going to stay like this uh, for for like the the rest of all time? And, uh, you know, are they going to come up with a a new team? I just want to pick up uh, the, uh, you know, the names because the the owner, Dan Snyder, was on the, uh, I think it was Adam Schefter's podcast. And so so he said that they're going to come up and they're going to release the new name. They've, They've narrowed it. They've got a short list of eight teams or sorry eight names uh, pardon me and they're going to make the announcement early in 2022 so are you ready for this they, they've got uh, th- this uh name or sorry that this list of teams and no where the heck did i just uh, put it uh uh here we go it was it, let's just say if i'm a fan of the washington uh, football team i i don't think i'd be really really you know, excited about this because the the names were just uh, not uh, you know not really too exciting. Some of them were really I, I think a, a little bit uh, a little bit uh, bland. Uh, here we go. There, there's my list. I, I thought you know by this point uh, you know I'd be a little bit more prepared after doing this for for so many years. But he, here's the list. I want to get your your take on this. Uh, so they they got the Washington Red Do- Red Hogs. Pardon me. The Washington Defenders. The Armada. The Presidents. The Brigade, the Commander, the Red Wolves, or possibly even stick with the Washington football team. Now, you know, I'm just going to go off a, a little bit off uh, off brand and off topic here. But, uh, you know, if you're a fan, are you really excited about those names? <laughs> because uh, honestly, I'm not. And I think it's kind of interesting because we're, we're always looking at the, you know, how big and how polished Formula One is. And I was thinking, you know, like... 
you know, an NFL franchise has to be one of the premier sports properties in the entire world, right? And I thought, you know, okay, this is going to be the, the the name of your franchise going forward for 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 decades. And I was just thinking, you know, especially the president's one. Okay, I get it, and I get the tie-in with Washington, and you know, the the you know the capital and all that. But is that something you really want to go for? I mean, what are you going to do as a mascot? You're going to have like a Gerald Ford mascot or a Jimmy Carter. I mean, you know, there's no knock against presidents, good or, or bad. But I'm I'm not really feeling it. Anyhow, that's uh, neither here nor there. That's just uh, my little observation. And yes, I'm pumped because football season has started. Football season is back. But that's what not what we're here to talk about. So we're here obviously to talk about Formula One, and there's been a ton of things to talk about uh, this week. I know both. You and I pulled late nights last night uh, to watch the the Michael Schumacher, the long-awaited Michael Schumacher documentary that dropped a couple of days ago on Netflix. And that's what we wanted to talk about to to start the show off. Seven-time world champion, made his debut way back in the early 90s at Spa with a memorable weekend with uh, with Jordan. And it wasn't uh, too long before he was snapped up with uh, Benetton, where he won two world championships in 94 and 95, then goes to join uh, Ferrari. Took a little bit of time before he broke his duck and started getting back to winning championships from you know with the with the Scuderia. But once that happened, the floodgates opened and they were winning championships in races like it was uh, going out of style. But it was, I thought, a very very well done uh, you know, film. I, I really enjoyed it. I really loved the context it was given by not just um, you know media personalities and and journalists that have co- that covered him and his and and his career, but also his family, some friends, uh, you know drivers that uh, he raced again like Mika Hakkinen and Damon Hill. I thought it was interesting too. They had um, you know Mark Webber in there. Mark Webber doesn't look like he's changed a bit. Uh, Mika looks like he's put on a few pounds, but obviously he's middle aged now and not an active Formula One driver. But I thought it was very well done, and <clears throat> excuse me, I, I don't think I'm the only one that really choked up in the last 15 or 20 minutes when you know you you get to the end of his career and you know that tragic skiing accident which he suffered a, a you know traumatic head injury you know, way back in 2013 just after Christmas and just watching his you know listening to his wife and his daughter and his son Mick Schumacher obviously current uh, Formula One driver with Haas and you know. Uh, it 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 was tough getting through that last part was tough because you know his wife said you know when when he was you know racing and when he was in the public light uh, you know he did his best to protect us from all all that and now it's our turn to protect him and it, it was interesting because I mean you, you don't see him obviously they they don't really talk about what his actual condition is but you can read a lot between the lines and I found that a really difficult contrast to to really you know deal with because you see. All this, you know, you know, video footage of him, you know, when when he's a kid, when he's a teenager, and when he's coming into Formula One and his, you know, wildly crazy and successful career, and just the footnote that 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 it ends on, and you know, obviously that was a, a life changing event for him and his whole whole family. But I, I just wanted to get your take on it because I'll I'll just sort of wrap it up here, and you you can you you can run with it uh, uh, from from here on, Mark, but. I think that the best way to sum up Michael Schumacher's legacy in Formula One is it's complicated. What, what, what do you think? Yeah, not to sound too cliche based on some really good feedback we'd received earlier today, <laughs> but I, I don't disagree. And 
I, I think that's the perfect term because I think sometimes when we reflect back on the last 20 or 30 years, it's easy sometimes to gloss over or look past some of the elements of his career that weren't necessarily as onside as we would like to believe they were. And one of the the moments that you and I have alluded to many times, and I think for a lot of our listeners that this was new and maybe something they didn't know was, of course, he was disqualified from the 1997 Formula One World Drivers Championship. He was disqualified because of an incredibly abrasive move on Jacques Villeneuve in the final race of the season when the two of them were battling right down to the wire for the Drivers' Championship. And I I think that that term that you use to describe his career as, as complicated is, is probably apt. But all of that said, I also don't want to overshadow the greatness that was Michael Schumacher, Mm -hmm. both as a competitor and as a champion, and for the seemingly unending work that he put in to building up and creating these championship caliber teams. I I also don't want to take away from the fact that very clearly and without a shadow of a doubt, he was incredibly loyal to his family. Mm -hmm. He was incredibly loyal to his friends. He was incredibly loyal to his his country, Germany. So I think for all those reasons, you're right. Off the track, he seemed to be this great personality and this great person. To your point as well, he wasn't necessarily somebody that embraced the spotlight. And again, I know that sounds very cliche, but right from the beginning of the documentary, they were very clear that that's not something he was particularly comfortable with. And maybe it's also a good thing that he didn't drive in the modern era simply because the exposure that he and his family would have had through social media and all these other channels would have been so much brighter and so much more intrusive. But I think it was a fairly well-constructed look at his career. And I just, I jotted down a couple of points that I wanted to speak to real quick because I I didn't want to miss them. One, Mm -hmm. and this is something that I kind of mentioned when we were talking to Matt Sakaris a couple of weeks ago, which is I wondered how much of this film was going to be new footage or rather just splicing together old TV broadcasts of race footage. And there was a little bit of that, but I think what I was pleasantly surprised to see was there was a lot of 16 mil and 35 millimeter film for the early parts of his career that were scanned and converted to high definition. And it looked great and it really helped provide a window into an era that I think we're typically used to seeing in low definition interlaced footage. So that was really, really nice to see. I I like that a lot. Um, I like that it leaned into his family. I like that it leaned into the personality of the family. I like the fact that it reinforced the fact that he, like Lewis Hamilton, really came from humble beginnings. I like the fact that they spoke to the fact that, hey, he would use salvage tires for competition, tires that were discarded from other other drivers. But I think there were also a couple of pieces that I was fairly dissatisfied with. One was... I was very excited to learn more about that rapid transition from Jordan to Benetton. Um, For those of you that do want to learn more, the Checkered Flag podcast did a really great Schumacher special towards the end of 2018, and I urge you to go and listen. That was fantastic. And then the other piece, and this to me is something that I thought was inexcusable, was the included footage of the Senna crash. I have been a Formula One fan for 34 years. I have never seen that footage. I have never wanted to see that footage. I have never sought that footage. I did not need to see the footage. And I Mm -hmm. thought the inclusion of the footage was unnecessary. It didn't benefit the narrative. It didn't benefit the story. It did a disservice to Senna and his family. And it wasn't as though, you know, 
here's a shot of the race. You've got Michael, you've got Senna. Oh no, he goes off. And then they cut away. They lingered exactly. and went back and back and back. He, he, we now know that was a fatal crash. We did not need to see it over and over again. This is a documentary about Michael Schumacher. And I get what they were trying to build. And we talked about this on the Spaces chat earlier tonight was they're trying to build into the fact that that very much rattled him and it caused insomnia and it changed his approach to Formula One. And I think he recognized the dangers. You didn't need to show that footage. So for me, that was largely inexcusable. But aside from that, I think it was very, very well done. And I'd also seen some criticisms of the fact that, hey, they probably didn't lean into that 1997 disqualification enough. I actually thought as a JV fan and somebody that mm -hmm. is critical of certain elements of Schumacher's career, I thought they did a good job documenting and capturing 1997 and not glossing over it. I'd like to know your thoughts on the centerpiece. Did you know it was coming? And when it happened, what were your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think we kind of expected it, knowing the way that after Senna died in that uh, that awful crash at Imola in '94, that there was there there was a bit of a vacuum in the sport because I mean he was the undeniable face of Formula Very One. True. He was Very the true. superstar. He was the he he was the gold standard. I mean. He was the 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 best uh, driver. I mean, and very much like we talk about Lewis being one of the best of all time. The, the, all those same things that we say about Lewis now, they said about uh, Senna way back in the day, right? And I I must admit I was I was shocked because I I watched it when it happened and I've never been able to go back to to watch it. I've mentioned it on the of show course. a couple of times uh, over For the sure. years. My brother gave me the Senna documentary on um, on DVD a number of years when it came out. I mean, it's not even a Blu-ray; it's a, it's a DVD. So, I mean, and, and that was done by the same guys as Box to Box, uh, wasn't it? It was, yeah. yeah. And it's a phenomenal um, documentary, and very much like the, the the Schumacher one. There was a lot of footage of Senna growing up and his, his the course of his life and his career in Formula One and all that. But when it gets to that weekend at Imola, I was never able to get through it. I've never been able to to, to bring myself to watch that, Me that either. crash Me again. Either. And I've never been able to watch that uh, documentary from start to finish. And that that's nothing to against the the boys of Box to Box because they they do you know fantastic work. I, it was just when I saw that, I was shocked because much like yourself, I have not sought that out. And I, I was shocked. Literally, I, I was shocked. I had to stop the film and I thought to myself, you know, this was not necessary. You could easily have cut away at the very last uh, moment and still brought the the whole the whole point across. And then, I mean, if you wanted to sort of uh, you know bring it back in, then sure, maybe show the helicopter flying away from from the circuit or or show some of the the, you know, the stuff happening in the pits. You know, I, I thought that was unnecessary that inclusion, but. Um, you know, unfortunately, they did, and I think that is a bit of a smear on what, for the most part, was a fantastically insightful film. And the one thing I was very intrigued about, um, like yourself, was um, the the transition from Jordan to Benetton. Obviously, in the amount of time that they had, the you know, the, there there were time considerations. There were some things that they had to to, to gloss over, and just uh, you know, they they had to make obvious decisions at some point. So that was a bit of a disappointment. I thought it was really good though to have the context of somebody like Ross Braun, who was obviously you know a very important figure within Ferrari at the time. And I love how, you know, he's the managing director of uh, motorsport at Formula One. But I love how for the documentary it says Ross Braun friend and the same for Jean Tote he was the team principal 
principal at Ferrari back in those days. He's now president of the FIA and the same thing. It says friend, right? And But I thought it was really fantastic the way that Ross lent the context to, to that. And, you know, I'll, I'll admit, I was a fan of Schumacher, but this is going to sound very Gollum-esque, my precious, but I both loved and hated him with a passion at, at the time. And it took a long time for me to come around and and really appreciate the, the genius that he was as a racing driver, because there are a lot of black marks on his career. That incident with uh, with Jacques at Jerez in 97, I, I mean, it's it's ugly. It's, it's nasty. And I, I think that if you know the timing of the the documentary dropped at exactly the perfect moment because i know we were talking about with matt a couple of weeks ago that hey we're sitting here for three and a half weeks on a summer break they should have dropped it then but now we don't get it to the middle of september but in retrospect now having watched it it is the perfect time because we we just had this incident with max and lewis at monza last week we had the 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 incident of max and lewis at silverstone and, you know, this is all fresh on our minds. And then you see this, uh, you know, in all its glory, uh, that's glory, I mean, I'm being a little bit uh, facetious, but, uh, you know, in, in all its nastiness, Michael deliberately turning into Jacques at Jerez in 97, trying to put him out of the race and instead knocking himself out of the race. And then the disciplinary action afterwards and him being, you know, banned and removed from the the, the 97, um, you know, the... You know the, the the you know what he had to deal with being barred from it, right? And I love the context that Ross gave because you know Schumacher was so focused. He came back to the pits convinced he'd done nothing wrong, and it wasn't to the point that that Ross showed him the video that he was like, "Oh my God, that actually was me." And I think it really painted the the picture nicely of just how hyper focused he was, and just I mean, winning was everything. I've got some more thoughts on this. I, I want to keep going, but I'm going to ramble. So let's take a, a really really quick break we'll Sounds come back good. and we'll, we'll pick it up on the the flip side so guys don't go away we'll be back in just a moment to, to finish wrapping up our thoughts on the schumacher documentary passion drive and patience the formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive ebay motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Okay, welcome back to the show. You're listening to Mark Squared. We're talking about the Michael Schumacher documentary that uh, dropped uh, earlier this week on Netflix. And we were just uh, discussing before the break that incident between, uh, I was going to say Lewis and Max, <laughs> that, that we're going to talk about that too, uh, between Michael Schumacher and Jacques Villeneuve that had championship implications at the, uh, I guess it was the Portuguese Grand Prix or was it the European Grand Prix that year? I can't remember. Anyways, at uh, Jerez in uh, 1997, Michael turning in on Jacques who had a terrible start in the race which they showed brilliantly he had the faster car he was going to catch Michael at some point and pass him and I love when when Jacques dives down the inside Michael you know he you know he left the door open a little bit he's kind of still taking that wide line you can kind of see him thinking about it and then you know you see him crank on the wheel and uh, smash into the side pod of Jacques Villeneuve. He bounces off. He goes into the gravel. Jacques goes on. He eventually wins the race. He wins the championship. Michael banned and all that stuff. And it was it was just it was fascinating because I was convinced back in the day in '94 watching that incident uh, between himself and Damon Hill because I was cheering for Damon in those days. I mean Williams was still towards the pinnacle of their power and my dad growing up in the 60s he was a fan of Graham Hill and it was just kind of a, a natural kind of um, you know thing and, and and Michael at that point I mean he was great I mean he was a, an exciting driver to watch but we kind of thrown everything in with with Damon at that point and uh, and our family and I was convinced that that was on purpose and of course that is uh, back in the day before you had like a million different TV angles and replays and you know being able to watch it on YouTube and social media and all that stuff but you know it was really interesting too and I'm glad that they brought Damon in to kind of give his perspective about it. And you know, I've I've changed my mind about that uh, that that incident over the years uh, to a certain degree. I mean, I think that was one of those uh, situations that, you know. <laughs> It was probably a little bit more 50-50 than I thought at the time, which I think is interesting, you know, when we have some of these conversations about Max and Lewis. And that's why I thought just from that point of view, I mean, you want to see a deliberate action to take another driver out of the race. I mean, you know, that that incident between uh, Schumacher and Jacques, that, that, is the, <laughs> that is the only example that you can cite, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thought I had when watching that was... I felt like Braun as as his former boss, mm -hmm. as his his friend, obviously somebody that's very close to the family. He had to walk a fairly delicate line when commenting and narrating on that incident in mm -hmm. 1997 with JV. I, I felt at first that he was probably being a little too generous towards Michael in the sense that, hey, he he honestly believed that JV turned into him. And mm -hmm. I just, I can't believe that that was necessarily the case. To me, that that was a, maybe not premeditated, not in the sense that, hey, look, when he catches me, I'm going to go wide in a corner so I have the opportunity to turn into him as he's taking the inside line. I don't believe that. But I also don't believe that he honestly believed that it was JV that had turned into him or had made contact with him. If you look at that footage, it's such such an abrupt, abrasive maneuver. But that said, I think a couple of the other takeaways that I had, and one of them was what you were just commenting on a couple of moments ago, which is the incident with Damon. I loved seeing the Adelaide track. I thought that was fantastic. And not to take anything away from Melbourne, because Melbourne is spectacular, but Adelaide, it brought back some really great memories mm -hmm. for me, having watched some of those races with my grandparents growing up in rural England. But a couple of other points that I wanted to add real quick was, one, the scale of Formula One in the 90s, it was like 
And again, this is select footage, but it felt like every single race was a rock music festival. It was huge. The media present was gigantic. The grandstands were packed. It just, we talk about the growth trajectory of Formula One right now and how big it's getting and the growth we're seeing with TV and attendance and all of those different types of things. It seemed to be on a scale in the 90s that's difficult to comprehend today. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was mesmerizing. And I'd forgotten because I was so young that it was that big. And I think sometimes I think, hey, Formula One's at its peak now. And maybe it's not. Maybe the 90s were at its peak. But the other piece, and this ties a little bit back to that Senna piece, and a number of people commented on this today, even on the Spaces chat. But the lack of safety in Formula <laughs> One back in the yeah. 90s was appalling. And it wasn't just the tracks, the lack of runoff area, the concrete barriers, the cars, the fact that it felt like the drivers were sticking two feet out of the cars in a lot of cases. But there was that scene early on in the documentary where Michael had made contact with Senna and spent spun Senna off and Senna's race was over. Michael's wasn't, but he also does this to, to rotate the car and get back onto the track, he basically drifts the car at full throttle through a throng of marshals and races right through a group of marshals <laughs> on the side of the track. I'm just like, if a driver did that today, we're talking about a race ban, a two race ban. Oh yeah. But easy, yeah, right? Formula One was just a different world. And you and I have talked about this so much, which was Imola 1994 was an inflection point for Formula One. It was an inflection point for the FIA and everything began to change from that moment. But Mm -hmm. this documentary absolutely gives you a snapshot into what the world of Formula One was like prior to all of those safety initiatives being implemented over the following years and the following decades. You know, it's interesting, too, because uh, you, you mentioned it just like the, I, I guess, the hype going on at that time with like the, the Schumacher mania. And I experienced in person in my early 20s when I went to the European Grand Prix at the Nürburgring in 2001. And it was great because they did show some footage from Hockenheim. I can't remember what uh, what, what year it was, but it was just amazing. You got the air horns, you got the smoke, you've got all the flags. And I mean, we, we do see that uh, to to a certain extent. We saw it a couple of weeks ago at Zonfort. We always see it at Monza. We see it at Silverstone with with, with Lewis. But it just seemed it was like on a bigger scale back in those days. And I, I remember when, when when we went to that race. I mean, it, it, it was incredible just the the atmosphere and. Uh, just uh, sitting there with all the Ferrari flags, all the Schumacher flags, all the German flags, and just this wave of noise that would travel around the circuit with Michael, you know, at the start of the race, at the end of the race, during quality. It was, it was, it was, I've never experienced anything like that. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was fantastic. And it was kind of cool. It kind of gave me goosebumps to, 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 to see some of that. But yeah, just going back to your point about the safety thing. And the other thing that's really struck me was, I can't remember which. Which, uh, which point in the movie it was, but you got some halfwits standing right on the, the grassy verge waving the checkered oh. flag and these cars going by at 200 miles an hour. I'm just thinking, oh my yeah. God, because, you know, it, it's not that long ago. That That's no. the thing. And it, that was a real mind blower. But in, in a couple of people, we'll mention this in a couple of minutes because we want to share some of our listener thoughts, but just the ability for fans to get on the track, mm-hmm. like we're seeing these cars being mobbed by fans moments after the race concludes. And even when we're talking about the, the podium celebrations, the tracks are just swamped. One other thought I had while you're talking about the experience at Hockenheim and the German Grand Prix, we didn't have a German Grand Prix in 2015, 2017. We didn't have one last year. We didn't have one this year. And it sounds increasingly like there certainly won't be one next year or the year after. So it's it's shocking that we live in a world where 
Michael Schumacher, a German driver, wins seven titles. Sebastian Vettel wins four driver titles. Nico Rosberg wins a title. And now we have Mick Schumacher in the sport. And we're still more, still no more likely to have a, a German Grand Prix in the next two or three years than we were a year ago. It's, it's shocking that mm-hmm. German drivers have so dominated this sport and that you have a young stud in Mick Schumacher that is now bravely suiting up for the, the toxic, Sacramento Kings of the of the Formula One world in Haas. And I stole that from Kate on the Spaces chat tonight. But the fact that we have another aspiring German superstar and there's no German Grand Prix on the horizon, which I think is incredibly sad. Yeah, I, I 100%. I mean, I, I've been to races at both Hockenheim and at the Nürburgring. You know, I've been to Rally Deutschland. I mean, I'm, I mean, look, I mean, there's a German manufacturer that's been dominating Formula One for near on oh, a decade yet now. Oh, great point. Oh, my gosh. You know, I mean, it's the obvious elephant in the room, right? And yet, the, you know, the, the German Grand Prix has been hit and miss. The only reason we were at uh, at the Nürburgring last year is because of COVID and this, you know, cobbled together schedule that they, they did such a brilliant job to do. But I mean, it's almost inconceivable to me like that, that Germany is missing from the Formula One calendar. Um, you know, just like it, it seems like it, it, you know, like not having the Japanese Grand Prix or the British Grand Prix or Belgium or some of these staples that, uh, you know, of, of the Formula One calendar, you know, it's mind boggling. But the other thing that, uh, that I find really interesting is despite the, the success that, um, you know, Schumacher had, then you look at uh, Seb, four time world champion, Nico winning a world champion coming close and pushing Lewis on a couple of occasions just have not generated the same hype the the same fanfare that uh, that that Michael Schumacher did I mean it was a phenomena that was unique you know in of, of itself it's just I don't know will we ever see it again perhaps maybe if Mick can replicate what his dad did but or maybe not I don't know Maybe it was just one of those things that uh, we'll always look back at fondly, just unique to that era of Formula One. I don't know. I want to quickly run through some comments that some of our listeners shared. And if you want to comment on any of these, just interject and let me know. So I'm going to quickly run through these because I thought these were pretty valuable. Bengal Hugger, uh, I feel like it skipped, that being the documentary, over the majority of his championships. They built up the first one and then was like, okay, now he's at Mercedes. As a Gen DTS, I was hoping to see and hear more about some of the battles on the track over Mm -hmm. those great Ferrari years. Great doc on Schumacher, the person nonetheless. Yep. Uh, from Greg Topher, I loved it. I started following F1 as a kid and I was a teenager when Schumacher or Schumacher came to Ferrari, watched every race and I remember everything. The doc brought me back and showed what a champion Michael was and why nobody after him has been at his level. Fred Couture, when I saw on podium Barrichello walking beside Schumacher, this is how Bottas years will remember walking the shadow of a legend like the Brazilian did years before. And always great to hear Murray Walker voice like when I was a kid watching it on Sunday night on CBC tape delay. Meg enjoyed it. But I also echoed the sentiment that I wish it had covered more on-track stuff and racing highlights for those of us that weren't tuned into F1 back then. Totally understand it being more about him as a person, not just a driver and his career, though. Andre Watts, I really fell for his family, especially his son. Hmm. Here you are in F1, and you literally cannot speak to your father, a legendary figure for that guidance and knowledge that very few of us would have daily access to. This has to be tough on top of everything else. From Gary Duffy, part of the DCS Gen. I just so happened to have watched Senna last week for the first time. Following that with this has been a great to get an overview of the sport from the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. Been able to put faces to names and learn about major events. From Matt, 
Always amazes me some of the quality of old film. Thank God for people thinking ahead and actually using film reels, which, like I said, can scan into high-definition footage, unlike yeah. terrible tape. Also, the <laughs> end, I may have had some dust in my eye. From eight, from Jason so Stroud. So dusty in here. So dusty. <laughs> <laughs> Jason Stroud, the amount of people on the track at all times. Yeah, we commented on that a couple of minutes ago. And then finally, uh, Larry Walden III, love the film, really showed what went through his mind. Now, a couple of questions for you okay. um, from BW626. He commented on, hey, would love to have seen more from the Jordan Benetton transition was skipped over, which we yeah. agree to. Um, he also, take a look here, has a really great question because they allude to it a little bit in the film. One, how bad was Ferrari in the 90s? <laughs> and bad. two... He turns into JV in 97, which was a disqualification, which I don't know that was necessarily glossed over. So maybe the main question here is talk a little bit about how bad Ferrari was in the years leading up to his arrival. Oh, I mean, it was it was pretty bleak. I mean, you had other drivers that were at the pinnacle of their careers, like Alain Prost and uh, Nigel Mansell. They went there in the, the late 80s, the early 90s. But by the time that Schumacher was there, I mean, they were just dreadful. I mean, they weren't, say, Williams or McLaren, you know, you know, 2015, 2016 awful, but they were pretty bad. And I thought it was interesting how, you know, you get some insight from, you know, some of the comments, uh, archival comments of uh, Schumacher himself and Eddie Irvine, who was his teammate uh, there, you know, for quite a while before uh, Rubens Barrichello was, and just how the car was fundamentally wrong and just the design concept. It was just wrong compared to everyone else's. And I, I thought it was interesting because Irvine makes the comment that they have like all the car unveilings and he says, well, we went and looked at the Ferrari and not only was it different, but it was completely different than everybody else's car that year. <laughs> and he was just, uh, he was really nervous that that was not a good thing. And ultimately he was proven correct and it was just a horrible car to drive. So to be able to get anything out of it was just, um, you know, it was it was virtually impossible. So for, for, for either of them to record any good results in those cars was really, you know, something spectacular. But I mean, you look, I mean, we see the impressive names and people that we see at, at, uh, sorry, at uh, Mercedes and Red Bull in this day and age. But I mean, it took them a while. And I thought one of the things that really stood out for me was the admission at some point that, you go into 96 and there's no title. And then 97 and 98 and 99, and you know, because you got like, uh, you get Jacques win or winning, then, then Mika. And then you hear these admissions that, you know, we're getting to the point now, did we actually sign the right guy? Was, was Schumacher the guy that we should have signed or should we have tried instead to get a hack? And then I was, you know, that was one of those, hey, wait, what? It's kind of sit up and... Uh, you know, uh, you know, to play that back again because that that was a bit of a you know, uh, you know, a major revelation in, in my opinion. But you know, I mean, you, you look at it now. I mean, the guys that they had, you know, Rory Byrne and Ross Braun, and then John Totes as the uh, you know as running the show, and then just like you say, the work that Michael put in, the fact that he would be there all the time. I thought it was cool the way that his wife uh, w was talking about that. He'd be coming and going all day and he'd be going off to meetings at like 10 in the night. And this is in the the year of unrestricted testing. And you see the cars on the track at Mugello and they're driving around. They said, yeah, you know, we'd be driving until it was almost dark some nights. And there was some footage of them driving in the dusk and just, uh, you know, the, 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 the camera screen lighting up when they would uh, go into the corners. You'd see those brake discs glowing because they're so hot. I mean... 
it was phenomenal. But I thought it was really cool too the way that uh, they, they talked about him and just uh, the the fact that he he would really be interested and and really be a you know a good colleague and in some cases a good friend to the people that he worked with and he really cared about them even down to the guy that was the cook saying oh you know your pasta is the best and I, I think he really understood people that way and I thought it was you know it was really really uh, interesting but yeah I mean. It took a long time to kind of get back on point here. That, but uh, before they really started building cars that uh, that that were good. I mean, they really were far far off of the mark. And I think it's interesting if you go and read Ross Braun's book Total Competition that came out several years ago, and he talked about these things being like a three year project when you get involved. It's like the first year you're there, you're trying to see, okay, what did I inherit? You know, what do we have? What do we have to work with? And then the second year, you know, you're you're it's like okay this is where we need to, to go these are the changes we need to start go you know start doing and then year three you're starting to got, got your program running and you're going in the the, the, the direction that you want to go so I think that kind of lacked that context uh, or insight a little bit because you know if you kind of take Ross's comments from his book to you know the the, the movie and the lack of success that they had in winning championships in the latter half of the 90s that uh, you know <laughs> they were taking a program that had some major major fundamental issues blowing it up picking up the pieces keeping what was good discarding which was garbage and 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 building it up and it took a long time to get all those pieces in place and um you know really get it up and, and you and stole running. my thunder a little bit if you, <laughs> i apologize sir no no that was great I think if you want to get some insights into what had gone so horribly wrong with Ferrari, not even in the 90s, like we, we could talk about, there were some flashes in the early 80s with Shields, but they sure. had a, a drought from 79 until really, until Michael was able to win that first title with mm-hmm. that team that was very reminiscent of the Yankees drought from the late 70s sure, into the, yeah, the mid 90s until just like Ferrari, once they once that they kind of cracked that egg, the, the floodgates opened for championships, but if you want to get some insight, I would highly recommend two things. One, pick up Total Competition, the book by Ross Braun. Yeah. He he shares some real insights into the work that was required when he got to Ferrari. And he talks about how isolated all of the teams were within the organization, that the paint shop didn't talk to the body shop, and the body <laughs> shop didn't talk to Arrow, and Arrow didn't talk to the engine. And it sounded at that time that Crazy. the entire philosophy when Ross got to Ferrari was engine, 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 everything else is secondary, aero is secondary, suspension is secondary. And they put all of their resources into an engine and they were building a crappy engine. And he talks a little bit about this in the Beyond the Grid podcast as well. So when he got there uh, and he brought as well, I think, uh, who was it? Rory Bryan as mm-hmm. a, from the UK to be the principal chief designer. Yeah. Uh, they, they overhauled everything, not just the physical car, but everything at Marinello on the campus from the way the campus was set up to where the buildings were located they rebuilt everything so absolutely that team was in a a very very tough spot and i credit obviously the fact that ross was a big part of bringing it around and again he's he's known to work miracles with teams look at ross braun gp in 2009 but but yeah really really great question yeah, well, just to, to sort of maybe uh, put this, uh, you know, book in this one, just maybe close off the discussion here is that, uh, you know, before guys like uh, Rory and Ross were there, I mean, they had John Barnard, who was the the chief designer there. And I mean, he was legendary. I mean, I, I believe he's the guy that, did, you know, designed and came up with the concept for the monocoque chassis. I mean, he was uh, instrumental in some of the, uh, you know, success that, uh, you know, a lot of the success that uh, the McLaren had before that. And then, you know, he goes to Ferrari, they have like great hopes there. I mean, like I said, they had guys like Prost and Mansell 
and uh, you know they just still couldn't get it done and i mean it, it's it's mind-blowing but you know that it took them 20 years to win a world championship again but you know kind of look where they are now i mean it's 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 a history does tend to repeat itself although maybe they haven't been quite you know haven't sunk quite as low sure, in recent sure. time as they did uh, you know after you know that uh, that last championship in uh, 1979 Okay, let's take another break here. When we come back, we actually have some, you know, some current news to talk about. So we'll do that in just a moment. So guys, don't go away. We'll be back in just a moment. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. Mark Daly, Mark Hamilton breaking down and bringing you all the latest Formula One news. You know, I thought we would talk about the the Schumacher documentary for maybe a segment. It turned out to to be two full segments, but uh, you know, it was it was really worth it. And you know, the other my other takeaway, my last thought on this is, is you know, as cool as I thought it's been to see like box to box in the three uh, seasons that we've seen of DTS and season four, you know, currently being uh, filmed and recorded, and you know, all that. Good Good stuff right now. I'm glad to see other people doing stuff uh, with, with Formula One, and especially on a platform uh, night, uh, like Netflix. I think is really cool. Anyways, my two cents. Where do we want to go from here? I mean, there, there's a ton of stuff that we've got. Uh, let, let's talk about the engine stuff. I know you're really excited to yes. talk about this. So, uh, why, why do you take it away? Yeah, this one is is very exciting, and I think it's something that you and I have talked about. Mm -hmm. Uh, quite a lot recently. And one of the things that makes Formula One so unique is that historically, there have been so many different manufacturers. And when I talk about a manufacturer, I talk about a road car manufacturer. There have been so many different manufacturers that have come to F1 and they've left their fingerprints on the sport. Some are still with us. Some have come and gone. Some have arrived, not been successful and left. We could talk about BMW. We could talk about Toyota. Mm -hmm. Others have come like Mercedes and experienced tremendous success. Others have had mixed success like Honda who have come and gone and come and are leaving again. But I think for me, one of the things that makes Formula One so special is that unlike so many of these spec car series where maybe you have one or two different manufacturers providing engines. And if you you look over at IndyCar today, you have two, you have a Chevy engine supplier, you have a Honda engine supplier. Formula One has a handful. So you have Honda, we know they're departing. They're going to pass that IP off to Red Bull. Red Bull's going to start its own powertrain division. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, we have Renault. They're not supplying anyone today, but they are producing their own. We obviously have Mercedes who's supplying four teams and we have Ferrari, etc. One of the things that I think people get really excited about sometimes is this concept of additional manufacturers joining the grid. And one of the stories that's really started to pick up heat over the last couple of weeks and months is this concept of potentially Volkswagen in any of its various branding and iteration joining the sport. And the reason the timing works is we now know that with the exception, I think of Ferrari and maybe one other team who haven't completely locked in their changes to their power unit, the power units that the teams finish this season with will be the power units that they run for 2022, 2023, and 2024. In 2025, maybe 2026, we are going to see a total overhaul of the engine formula. So just like next year when we go into this new era of aero regulation. So we have a new chassis, we have new aero design, new aero philosophy. In 2025 or 2026, we are going to see a completely new engine design. Now, the thing that's been a real deterrent to any additional manufacturers from joining the sport over the course of the last six or seven years is that in 2014, when they last revised the engine formula, they went from an incredibly simple 2.4 liter V8. And there was some variation of 
kinetic energy capture a couple of times in the last few mm-hmm. years, but a relatively simple engine formula to an incredibly thermally efficient engine, but one that is incredibly difficult to design and build. And the formula that was introduced in 2014, and we talk always about this turbo hybrid era, is what effectively amounts to a 1.6 liter V6. So if you ever hear the term ICE or ICE, it stands for internal combustion engine. That's what you have in your traditional road engine today. And in a Formula One car, we have a 1.6 liter V6. Bolted onto that is a turbocharger. And turbochargers are a really great way of adding additional power to smaller low displacement engines. Now, where the unit starts to get very complicated is in its hybrid build. And a Formula One engine is actually, the way I like to frame it is it's almost like a double hybrid system. So on a Formula One engine, you have your internal combustion engine, bolted to that, you have a turbocharger. And a turbocharger works because it takes exhaust gases, which spin a turbine, which takes cold air, it compresses the air, shoves it into the combustion chamber, and then it uh, injects additional fuel to create more power. Because that's the entire concept of an internal combustion engine, right? Is you're mixing air with fuel, the two of them combust, and it creates power. By adding a turbocharger, you're able to compress the air get more of it in the combustion chamber, you use electronic fuel injection to drive additional fuel in there. So you have this internal combustion engine and you have a turbocharger. Where the units start to get complex is there's two different hybrid systems at play. You have what we call an MGUK. This is a device that is basically capturing wasted energy from braking. So it's a fairly simple system. We experimented that with the during the V8 generation. Mm-hmm. It takes that wasted energy and it puts it into a battery. That battery powers an electric motor and the electric motor produces, I don't know, anywhere from 10 to 15% of all of the total power that these cars have. Now, where the system gets incredibly complicated and where some of the existing manufacturers don't like and what a lot of the potential manufacturers really don't like is this idea or this concept of an MGUH. And the MGUH is a mechanism that is tightly integrated with the turbocharger. And what it does is it captures energy from the heat, from the exhaust gases that pass through the turbocharger. And it does a couple of things with that energy. One, it can stick it into the battery, or two, it can stick it into the battery and immediately pull it back out to spin the blades of the turbine on the on the actual turbocharger because one of the challenges with a turbocharger is they're very very cool and it's a great way to produce power but turbochargers have this concept called turbo lag which means that a turbocharger isn't necessarily on demand if you're driving a car with a turbocharger and you get on the throttle the engine might start kicking in, but it takes a moment for that turbo to start spinning up. What this engine, this MGUH does, is it takes that wasted energy from the exhaust gases that are passing through the turbocharger, it sticks it in the battery, and then it takes some of it out. But what it does is it keeps that turbo spooling all the time. So a Formula One car, unlike a road car, doesn't suffer from turbo lag. Now, this all sounds great, and it's incredibly complicated, and I apologize (laughs) to all of our listeners at home because I've probably done a terrible job with this, But the MGUH is a real deterrent to a number of companies that want to get involved with Formula One. And a couple of years ago, Porsche, through the Volkswagen Group, um, actually built 
a prototype Formula One engine. And one of the things that they were very vocal about at that time was we're not feeling the MGUH. So what it sounds like is going to happen because the teams Formula One and the FIA are having ongoing conversations now about what that new power unit is going to look like in 2025 or 2026 is it sounds as like Mercedes and Ferrari and Renault, who are groups that were very invested in the MGUH because they've spent so many years evolving this technology, it sounds like they're willing to make a concession and drop it in the next generation of Formula One engine in the spirit of attracting another engine supplier. Now, in particular, we keep hearing a couple of manufacturers. We talk about Audi, we talk about Volkswagen, we talk about Porsche. At the end of the day, they all roll up into the same brand. We're not going to see any two of those. We'll see one. It will be Volkswagen, and ultimately it will be up to them to decide, hey, what brand do we want to apply to this, this power unit? Now, where it gets really interesting is Domenicali, Stefano Domenicali, he's obviously very close to Volkswagen. He's an ex-Volkswagen guy. He's got some really close relationships with the folks there. But more importantly, the current Porsche vice president of motorsports, Fritz Enzinger, is highly, highly motivated to get involved with Formula One. He previously headed up the BMW F1 efforts, and he's made some comments over the course of the year that there is great interest within the Volkswagen family to get more involved with Formula One or motorsport in general if the conditions are are right. And in specifically, what he means is if there are aspects of sustainability in a future power unit, such as the introduction of e-fuels, this would be of great interest to us. Now, a couple of the developments that have presumably happened this week, and again, this isn't being widely reported because these are discussions behind closed doors, but the thought is that the current internal combustion engine would remain static in the sense that it's going to remain a six-cylinder, 1.6-liter engine, but it's going to have significantly more standardized parts than today's engine. And in the spirit of satisfying those manufacturers that are currently involved with Formula One, it sounds like there will be a requirement that the electrical component of a future Formula One engine in 2025 or 2026 might be required to produce up to half of all of the power that's on the band as that's opposed amazing. to 10 or 15%. Yeah. So a lot, I know I just download a big chunk of information, but it's exciting and it's exciting as well that some of the manufacturers that have been very successful with the current formula are willing to make concessions to simplify the power unit in the spirit of bringing other manufacturers aboard. So I don't know what you think, but this is something that I get very, very excited about. Yeah, me too. And I, I think it's very, very interesting, like you say, that uh, that these engine manufacturers are willing to make these compromises despite all the investment and the time that they've put into developing these uh, engines and these uh, different components that go into- Billions, the, yeah, billions of dollars, Billions right? of dollars, exactly. In order to, you know, attract other manufacturers into the sport. I mean, Total Wolf has uh, said that, you know, they're, they're willing and ready to do anything that it will take to help get uh, Volkswagen into Formula One. Amazing, amazing. And yeah, that just sort of blows my mind. I mean, you know, I'm, I guess it's because you know, we're from, you know, a generation that was used to Formula One almost being a private playground. And it was just like, you know, if you don't have the the wherewithal to be here, then, you know, forget you. You shouldn't be here. You know, we're, we're not going to make, you know, any we're not going to make it easy for you to get here more or less right so i mean these admissions and especially Toto saying this i mean basically of his own accord i mean so i'm not speaking for anybody else uh, on behalf of anybody else at mercedes but you know i think this is something that we need to make happen i mean that is um you know <laughs> that's mind-blowing to be quite honest but 
I, I think the the whole point is, and I've thought about this a lot over the past, you know, number of months, just in, in general, when these sort of philosophical, you know, ideas just as I think as as great as it is, the electrification of like the road fleet and uh, different manufacturers, um, you know, creating and selling uh, electric vehicles. And I mean, we've just seen Ford uh, launch, what is it, the, the F-150 Lightning, you know, an electric pickup truck. I mean, there's obviously place for that, but I, I don't. I can't foresee a, a world in the short term where we, you know, we all of a sudden in the space of 15 or 20 years go from, you know, internal combustion engines to, to hybrids and then to electrification. I mean, I think that there is going to be a need and a place for internal combustion engines in society for a long, long time to come. And, you know, having said that, the only way to do it is to have incredibly efficient engines that are clean and burn clean fuels. And I, I can't think of a better place where the trickle down technology comes from than, you know, something like like Formula One. And I mean, that's been the thing for the longest time, the sort of trickle down technology. And I think it's cool because in my Mitsubishi, I have the paddle shift on the back of my steering wheel and it's incredibly cool. And I've got traction control and ABS and th that stuff that was developed in Formula One decades ago, right? Right. I mean, it's cool. Right. And, um, you know, it, and, and obviously ABS and traction control have obvious safety, you know, uh, benefits on, on a road car and in different conditions and things like that. But I mean, th that technology's come a long way for road cars over the years and decades. And obviously where we're at right now, uh, you know, the, the next big thing is to, you know, where, where do we go? I mean, uh, th there is obviously going to be a bridge. I mean, when you look at where we live in British Columbia, a province of what, about four and a half, five million people, not a, a huge hugely densely populated area, although we do have a couple of pockets in the, the, the province that are more densely populated than others, but it's not New York City, it's not Tokyo, it's not Mexico City or Rio de Janeiro. And, you know, <laughs> we're pretty lucky because uh, air pollution is not a big, big issue here for, for the most part. But I mean, having said that, it's not like it's not a concern. And I mean, there's been some talk that, you know, with the politicians at the provincial level that they'd like to see basically electrification of private vehicles by 2040 or something like that. And I, I, I just don't see it happening because even in an area like an area of the world that is very resource rich, I mean, we have, you know, hydroelectric power to spare that we we sell off. Right. But I mean, how would we charge and power all these electric cars? That's that's one thing. So. I think it, it, it's a very cool discussion. I'm going to be really watching it in the weeks and months and years ahead because I, I think it is a fascinating thing. I mean, these engines that came online almost a decade ago are, are nothing short of um, technological marvels. I think what is interesting too is that they're going to put a you know a cost cap on these engines that it, they can't cost more than I think it's a million euros or something like that, which is still a hell of a lot of money. But uh, I think it is interesting that they they're they're making them basically do more with less so all these brilliant people that uh, you know all these brilliant minds that design and build these things are going to have their 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 work cut out for them and i i think it is an exciting and an interesting challenge
Yeah, I completely agree. I really feel that Formula One has a significant runway with a hybrid system that uses some sort of synthetic fuels. I think it satisfies the long-term Formula One fans. I think it potentially satisfies the manufacturers. And I think it continues to provide that visceral experience that we all want, which is noise and fury. And it's funny because as I was researching for this podcast today, I I kept coming across comments from those that have competed at the Formula E level. And Formula E is great, but I think given how much of a spec series it is, it's Mm -hmm. created frustration for teams like BMW and Audi and Mercedes that, hey, look, there's so little innovation here and the spec sport is so standardized. We can't Mm. take anything that we develop in the sport and bring it to our road cars. And furthermore, I think in a lot of ways, it's basically seen as a, a live action video game. And I'm still eager to experience Formula E, but... For those that think Formula E will grow and grow and is destined to become the new Formula One, I don't think that's ever going to happen. I think Formula One will continue to evolve. Like a couple of years ago, but I think it uh, it kind of disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. Same. I feel the exact same way. And it's probably presumably due to the way that Formula One is approaching its future in a, a slower, kind of methodical fashion. But you're absolutely right. The current engine is an absolute technical marvel and i don't think any of us should take it for granted just the thermal efficiency of this engine is absurd we're talking about a 1.6 liter v6 which is no different than you would see in most most passenger cars producing near on a thousand horsepower and shattering lap records globally Um, and that's despite the fact that there are significant constraints from an fia perspective and a technical regulations perspective to slow it down if the teams were un unbridled they could produce significantly more power with this exact same formula so so yeah it's interesting i'm excited to see what the next few steps are it sounds like we're probably going to learn a a lot more about the future of the power unit that 2025 2026 spec power unit early next year and that's probably necessary because i believe it's going to take teams that much time to start tooling to start building the team start building the capabilities and then i think a big part of it too is that Formula One and FIA have all but agreed through this change that there's going to be significantly more standardized parts. And ultimately, that means they're going to need to find contractors to build the parts that the teams will buy from. So, yeah, I love that topic. You know, just uh, one final thought before we we, we close out this story, Mark, is that just going back to Formula E, like, you know, like I was saying just a a moment ago that I had that this question several years ago now, is this going to be like a a rival series to Formula One? Is it going to catch up to it? Is it going to pass it? I mean, you know, it's it's a big ask, right? But I think what's, what's really interesting is all these manufacturers that were going into Formula E a number of years ago and, and setting up a program there are now starting to, to, to pull out a Formula E that, you know, we, we've done everything that we think that we, we need to do here. And uh, we, we think that our time and money and our resources are, are better spent uh, somewhere else. So that uh, is certainly very, very fascinating. Okay, let's take a, a quick break here again, Mark. When we come back, we've got some driver news again. I thought that the, the grid was pretty well set for this uh, you know, next year, but it never ceases to surprise and fascinate uh, each and every year. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back.
Okay, well, welcome back to the program. And I was just checking, you know, I, I get so used to these double and triple header weekends that we don't actually have a race this weekend. We oh, actually get a time to catch your I breath. I need before. some sleep, man. Like, the, <laughs> as much as I love a Formula One weekend, to put Me this too. into context for everybody that's not in the Pacific time zone in North America, it's a 5 a.m. start mm -hmm. to be ready for 6 a.m. qualifying on Saturday. And it's a 5 a.m. start on Sunday. And the challenge is it's not so early that you can go back to bed for a couple of hours or for an hour. Hour. Like once the race is over, you're up. And my little time. guy, yeah, exactly. My little guy usually wakes up at around lap 30, lap 40, and then it's it's over. My day is done. <laughs> now, before we get into the driver news, I quickly wanted to touch on a subject which I had I, I was reluctant to put into today's podcast because it's so clickbaity, but so many people had kind of reached oh, out and the, shared the their thoughts on this. the possibility that Donald Trump might run again in 24? Yeah, and he's looking <laughs> to buy the Buffalo Bills once again. Um, no, I know I'm not allowed to talk about Trump <laughs> on the air. I'm not going down that pathway. I don't want to start shedding le listeners left, right, and center. But uh, it's it's probably equally as, as I, I don't know, divisive as a topic. But we all know that Liberty Media bought Formula One. They agreed to terms in late 2016. Uh, yeah. They took total control in early 2017. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about the purchase, and this was reported by Christian Silton late 2017, who's done some really great work uh, reporting on the finances of Formula One and motorsports and interestingly theme parks. But one of the things that he'd written was, while the purchase price was $4.6 billion, Liberty only ever separated with $301 million of their own money. Hmm. So they bought... Formula One for $4.6 billion, they only handed over 300 million. The rest of it was debt acquisition, it was through share offerings, and it was with a loan that they're allowed to convert into shares at a future date. So hmm. that loan is understood to represent the bulk of that $4.6 billion. But as the shares of Formula One have increased, they're ultimately able to buy down that loan for a value significantly less than it was valued at at the time of purchase. So ultimately, the curious thing about this purchase is they were really only out $300 million. If they were to do a quick flip today, they would definitely be ahead because they only ever took $300 million out of the pocket. Now, that's said, I don't doubt and I don't question that Liberty's long-term goal is to eventually sell this business. Now, the story that broke a couple of days ago, and it mm -hmm. wasn't through any meaningful journalistic channels, was that a Saudi group, presumably through the Sovereign Wealth Fund or through Saudi Aramco or any of the other entities that are closely related to the government or some of the bigger companies there, were looking to prepare a bid to buy Formula One from Liberty. Now, Again, I don't doubt that at some point in the future, Liberty will look to sell. I refuse to believe that that time is now. The reality is that Liberty is just as conscious and is just as aware of the financial trajectory that this sport is on, that all of us are on, that to sell now would be to short sell. I think they have a very strategic vision for where the sport's going to be in three, four, five, eight years. I think they're very confident they're going to be able to achieve all of those milestones. So for them to sell now would be shorting themselves on the value that the product would inherently capture mm -hmm. over the course of that development path. We know sure. there's future expansion in the US. We know there's a lucrative US TV deal coming. We know there's potentially a third US race. We know that they can continue to monetize in different ways. I just don't believe that now's the time. Now, again, three years from now, five years from now, I think maybe they look around and say, hey, look, you know what? Formula One as, as a commercials right entity is peak value. Now's a good time to sell. 
I don't believe they're there yet. I think they're very confident that they can continue to extract value. So I wouldn't read too much into the stories that have been floating around about a Saudi group buying buying Formula One. I think it's I think it's pretty I think it's pretty comfortably within the realm of of Liberty's. Uh, I would say managerial abilities right now, but again, three years from now, five years from now, maybe a different story. I just, I don't see it happening today. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I didn't know what to make of that when, when I first uh, heard these uh, stories uh, the, this week, but it makes a lot of sense that uh, this would be too soon to be like, hey, you know, we could get a little bit of money like right now, you know, there's some interested parties, but the, like you just so nicely laid out there, Mark, there are a lot of big, juicy, really attractive things that could really totally. result in, in, in a bigger payday for them that maybe, although they're not imminent, I think that they're close enough to really still be tantalizing for, for like a Liberty Media to, to really pursue them and and in in view of a larger, bigger, you know, payout if uh, those uh, totally. things should uh, come to pass. Because we all know, and despite the fantastic uh, growth of uh, Formula One that we've seen in the United States, in the, especially in the past year, year and a half, especially in, in, in 2021, has been phenomenal. That is really just the, the, the tip of the iceberg. Like you say, Absolutely. I mean, we, we, we got Miami coming online next year. I mean, we've uh, had a successful race at Coda for a number of years. I mean, there's talk about hosting a third race i mean there's been a, a, a number of venues thrown out there and like i say i will not be convinced that formula one is big in the states until i go down to 7-eleven or whatever and i and, and lewis hamilton in cardboard form is trying to convince me to go buy a box of twinkies or a you know six pack of bud light or whatever it might be that's when i'll be convinced that that formula one is big it's mainstream and it's popular in the united states until then it remains a work in progress but i i just cannot be convinced at this point that that liberty would be willing to walk away i mean i guess it's possible somebody could you know to to coin a phrase make them an yeah, offer that they yeah, can't yeah. refuse i mean anything is possible i mean they have navigated the the, the pandemic very well i mean yep. while other sports were sitting at home trying to figure out what the heck to do they managed to put together a uh a, a very you know ram in very difficult circumstances they were able to to pull off a season and still get 17 races and it it was it was a great thing i mean it was the the racing was good uh, for for the most part and it was really i mean in the early days of the pandemic a really <laughs> damn good distraction to get our our minds off of things oh man you you so, do make a good point there which is let let's say a really smart well managed group from saudi comes along and they say look you spent 4.6 billion dollars well you did it you really spent 300 million dollars but yeah. you 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 committed to a purchase price of 4.6 billion dollars 5 years ago we know exactly what your growth plan looks like over the next 3 or 4 years here's 8 billion dollars cash mm -hmm. you can pay off all of the debt you can pay back the loan and you walk away with 4 billion dollars in the clear if if i'm liberty that's suddenly a very hard sell to my shareholders to decline. So you're right. Yeah. If the purchase yeah. price is right, anything's possible. And again, there are some very sophisticated companies in that region that would probably be very happy to take on the Formula One project and continue the growth strategy that Liberty's clearly implemented. I just, I don't know that it's there. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't read too much into this one. I'm still very confident that for Liberty, they've got a three or five year growth plan. But to your point, anything, anything can happen. Should we get to driver news? Sure. Let's do some driver news. As much as I've been excited to talk about these other things, driver news is always fun.
Definitely. So the first one, and this is something that kind of flew under the radar over the course of the last few months as Mr. Daly would spend 40 or 50 minutes of every podcast talking about where George Russell was or wasn't (laughs) going. Aston Martin has finally confirmed their driver lineup for 2022. And to the surprise of nobody, the son of principal team owner, Lawrence Stroll, Lance Stroll is coming back oh, I and joining him coming. dude this is shocking <laughs> news well we're we should be happy about this because it means that knowing that latifi nicholas yeah. latifi is going to be back on the grid next year we are going to have a two canadian driver lineup on the yeah. grid for the third consecutive year and what's really exciting about this for both of us is we haven't had a canadian grand prix since 2019 we should be back knock on wood in montreal next year so by the time we get back to montreal it'll be the first canadian grand prix in three years it'll be the first time that we've ever had two Canadians on the starting grid at the Canadian Grand Prix, and hopefully the crowd goes absolutely bananas. Now, on top of that, Sebastian Vettel, and there have been some stories over the course of the last week that there may have been some retirement considerations or some retirement conversations, has committed to coming back. Now, what we knew when he signed with Aston Martin was A, he took a huge pay cut coming from Ferrari where he was earning about $53 million US. Mm-hmm. He's now earning a paltry $17 million US. Now, when <laughs> he signed tough. last year, we knew it was a long-term deal with driver options after every single year. Okay. We believed it was a two-year deal. We believe now it may have been a three-year deal. So he'd obviously committed to 2021. He's now opted into the 2022 portion, but it's understood that next year he can opt into a 2023 portion. Now, if you remember in his lingering days, his final days at Ferrari, he'd made comments that he considered retirement. Hopefully, hopefully his time at Aston Martin has rejuvenated him. And he'd made some comments today as part of the press release indicating how excited he was for Mm -hmm. the new regulations and to drive the new car. So what we know, at least for next year, is Lance Stroll and Sebastian Vettel will be back. And hopefully Aston Martin is one of those teams that will benefit by the transition to the new regulations because this is a team that you and I had high expectations for their aero philosophy missed the mark um, and they've really really struggled despite the fact that Vettel put in two podium finishes although one of them was taken away by the FIA you know, the, the thing that this team uh, reads now or needs now is a little bit of uh, stability. I mean, they obviously, like you say, they missed the mark when it came to developing and designing this car for this year. So, I mean, they've got uh, a lot of work to do with the, the, the car for 2022. Maybe they get it right. Maybe they get it wrong. I mean, that can be said for all other the nine teams that are lining up on the grid beside them. So that is uh, one thing. But I mean, just concentrate on the car. I mean, you know that you've got a good engine in the Mercedes powering this thing. You've got two good drivers. I mean, Lance, obviously, I mean, he's he's been a bit frustrating to watch uh, at times uh, this year. Yeah. But I mean, Agreed. when he's on, I mean, he can be, you know, he can do some decent things out there. Seb, I still think, has a little bit left in the tank. And there must be enough going on with that program that has captured Sebastian's imagination. Because, I mean, he, he doesn't have anything left to prove. He doesn't need to really be there. I mean, considering, like you mentioned, he was already considering retirement, uh, you know, before he left uh, Ferrari. So there must be something more than the opportunity just to drive the new 2022 cars that are that is going on to convince him to come back for at least one more season so that that's that's my comment on that and i think it really kind of takes a lot of pressure off uh, the other areas and i think that it just uh, the the focus of the organization can be on the car itself and i think that uh, at this point can be only a good thing because 
yeah, I mean, it, it's been frustrating to watch. I mean, as uh, as fun as it was to watch them last year as their final year's racing point and everything that they were doing with the RP20, I mean, they were the big disturbers. And I was really hoping that was going to carry over to this year, much like uh, you were. And with the lineup uh, of uh, Vettel mentoring, you know, young Lance Stroll and some of the flashes that we've seen of him. And it's, it's really, really fallen short of the mark. And, uh, you know, to say both of us are disappointed uh, would be uh, a bit of an understatement. So we we didn't add this as a news story as well, but just on the topic of Aston Martin, they officially broke ground on their new factory, which will be placed immediately adjacent to their tiny barn of a factory at Silverstone. So, of course, when Lawrence Stroll and the consortium bought, I guess it would have been Force India out of administration all those years ago and briefly rebranded at Racing Point, Mm -hmm. they inherited all of the tiny tiny infrastructure (laughs) that came with what was a relatively low budget team. So they're going through the process of building out their roster in terms of people, uh, but also now beginning construction on their new factory, which I think is obviously exciting for that team. As to your point, they continue to develop and focus on their car moving forward. When is that new factory supposed to come online? 2023, I believe. Yeah, that that would sound about right uh, for construction project of uh, that size. Okay, now I think we wanted to talk a little bit uh, about uh, Alex Albon. But why don't we do that? Why don't we just take a, a quick break? We'll come back and we'll talk about Alex and some of the weird things that even he was not aware of, apparently. We'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. We're talking about uh, driver news and silly season and that final piece that needed to be confirmed that uh, that uh, Valtteri Bottas would be leaving Mercedes and George Russell was going to go to Mercedes really kind of opened up the, the, the floodgates. We've been seeing all sorts of other interesting things. And I guess it really is a good story to see uh, Alex Albon get another shot uh, with, with the team, even though that uh, he's a, a Red Bull driver. He's come up through the system and he's been at Tar Russell. He's been at, uh, at Red Bull. He's been a reserve driver and kind of been all over the place. And he's, um, you know, experienced for himself the infamous Red Bull chop, but now goes to, to drive for Williams for next year. And obviously they are a Mercedes powered team. And I think what is uh, interesting is that apparently the way that the, his contract has been structured will protect, I guess, the intellectual property of a Mercedes and everything that goes into, you know, the big rubber band that powers that uh, Mercedes power unit will uh, be, um, you know, all those secrets will be kept. And, uh, you know, basically, I guess he's signing an NDA, but he, even he doesn't know what those terms are, which I think is really quite interesting. I thought that was very funny as well. Obviously, we talked about this over the course of the last couple of weeks and and months, but it was always the motivation and the desire of Mercedes to have a Mercedes Academy driver driving a car powered by a Mercedes power unit. And we all know that they wanted Nick DeVries. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, he won the F2 championship in 2020. And then this year, driving for Mercedes and Formula E, he won a Formula E championship in his rookie campaign. Now, the challenge, of course, is Mercedes has backed out of Formula E, so they don't have a ride for him there necessarily. And they're trying to find somewhere to stash this driver. So their objective, their goal was they wanted to put him in the Williams seat next to Nicholas Latino. Tiffy Williams in an effort to show their independence, which Toto goes on this week in one of these interviews to stress he absolutely respects, although I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Um, Williams decided that they wanted to go in a different direction, that 
that Nick DeVries wasn't for them. They wanted mm-hmm. somebody that has a little bit of Formula One experience. And of course, Alex Albon has some Formula One experience, having spent basically half a year with Toro Rosso and a year and a half with the kind of the bigger Red Bull team. Now, the sensitivity here is one, I think Mercedes is feeling a little bit iced out because, hey, you're our partner team. We're selling you power units and now gearboxes. It would have been really nice if you'd taken our F2 Formula E champion and put him in one of your seats. But furthermore, you're now taking somebody that has historically been a part of the Red Bull Academy and the Red Bull family, and you're going to put him into a team powered by a Mercedes power unit. So presumably, and we don't necessarily know what this looks like, but presumably there's going to be clauses in language in Albon's contract with Williams that will strictly, strictly prohibit him from sharing any intellectual property details with Red Bull. And I think that's where Toto and team are probably a little bit sensitive in that, hey, he's going to be sitting around mechanics and technicians and engineers that will be discussing and talking about this power unit. He will be providing feedback to improve it. And he'll be obviously exposed to all of the data and telemetry. So the fear, of course, is that, hey, if this guy hops back to Red Bull or maybe has a a conduit to share this information with Red Bull themselves, it Mm. could put Mercedes at a competitive disadvantage. So I think the comment that Toto had basically said was, look, while we respect the authority of Williams to select their drivers, there was obviously some sensitivity here with respect to protecting intellectual property. And as such, there are some clauses in his contract, which I don't believe he's actually signed yet, which is maybe one of the reasons he's not super familiar with them, but that there's going to be some clauses in that contract that prohibit him from sharing that information. Now, whether that extends beyond the life of his 12-month contract with Williams, I don't know, but it is also interesting that Red Bull indicated that they retain all sorts of options to retain him if this, if and when the Williams agreement ends. So, so interesting, but it also just speaks to the peculiarities and the politics in the world of Formula One when you have drivers that are a part of one academy, but ultimately sit in the seat of a team powered by a competitor. Yeah, you know, it, it is interesting. And the, the one thing I love about this uh, signing uh, of Alex Albon at Williams is that uh, despite the fact that there was you know a lot of uh, pressure coming from Mercedes to put uh, Nick DeFries in that car and keep the, the, the Mercedes connection or presence within that team strong, that Williams decided just to to do what they wanted to do, and I, I really respect them uh, for, for for them because I mean, you know, th- there is obviously a, a lot of pressure, you know, be it from Mercedes or Ferrari or whoever that are uh, supplying these power units to these customer teams to you know influence these decisions. So I think it's really cool that they decided to go with Alex. And I was just doing a little bit of reading and apparently the way that they're going to keep uh, Alex away from uh, these things that they're going to threaten him with a Mercedes branded pitchfork anytime he gets too close to any sensitive uh, material. So... You know, I don't know that that might have been come from the same website as that Saudi uh, connection buying Formula One. So you might want to just take that with a pinch of salt. And uh, that's just uh, me being uh, me. But uh, <laughs> anyways, I, I think it is interesting um, that uh, that he does have all these NDAs in place. And I did think it was interesting, too, that uh, he's not really too sure what those terms are. But it uh, I, I think 
it's it's an interesting interesting situation to have a guy like that and and Alex is certainly going to have to mind his p's and q's but the thing is do Red Bull really want him back you know or is this that they just don't want to completely give him up because now you know I guess there's that possibility that uh, he's got that Mercedes link sort of via Williams that he could be snatched away and then sucked into the Mercedes William uh, you know the, the Mercedes sphere of influence I don't know that's an interesting point right because he's like Whether- Red Bull cast off, basically. Yeah, I agree. And as much as, well, the question isn't so much, does Red Bull want him back? But would he want to go back? He yeah. was, and this is important, earlier in his career, long before his Formula One days, he was pulled into the office by Helmut Marko and dropped out of the academy. <laughs> You're done. You're gone. Yeah. Somehow he finds his way back in, doesn't expect to get a seat in Formula One, is fully expecting to go to Formula E. At the very last minute, gets a ride with Toro Rosso, gets that early promotion to Red Bull. We all know what a toxic nightmare the 2020 campaign was for him and that team and i think we saw i would like to say we saw the worst of red bull but i think we saw that (laughs) after silverstone this year so my question is does he want to go back to that what what would make him compelled if there's opportunities with other teams and a fresh start why would you be compelled to go back to that team necessarily and to your point for when it's Red Bull, maybe it's just that fear of missing out, which is, hey, he's our guy. We don't want to see him get sucked into the Mercedes team and be successful there and then have to deal with the criticism that comes from having let him go and having dropped him and all those other kind of pieces. But yeah, if I'm Elbon and I have an opportunity with a new team and a fresh start, I'm, I'm going to explore that. And I'm not going to be super, super, super invested in finding my way back to Red Bull. Well, it's just how many times do you take your ex back after, you know, you've yeah. broken up and you, you, when you were together, it was just poison. You were fighting and it was the worst relationship For ever. Sure. You know, Alex, you know, if you need a little bit of F1 relationship advice, Mark and Mark say just, you know, make a clean break of it. Go your own way. You're a good guy. You're a good driver. Text me. <laughs> Text me. You know, you can do much better. Anyways, okay. What's next? Do we have any stories or are we going to jump into the, the the mailbag now? Oh, no, we wanted you- to talk about Danny Ricardo first, didn't we? I think so. Yeah. Quick, quick uh, recap of uh, Ricardo's spectacular win at Monza and then a quick comment. I just have a couple of leftover thoughts after the sprint race. Okay. Well, cool. Let's talk about Danny Ricardo first, because I think this was a kind of a cool story. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm really shocked that this kind of came out of uh, left field a little bit, that uh, that he was so racy. He, I was really expecting at the start of that race, I really expected Lewis and Max to pass those two McLaren cars and then they'd race off into the distance. Distance, but it was really anything but that. And I know there's been a lot of talk that uh, that that Lando kind of held station. You know, he wasn't going to you know try and you know pass uh, Ricardo. He should deserve to win, win that race. And I guess you know th- those are fair comments uh, to, to make and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, there was no team orders. There was no drama between Danny Rick and and Lando. And, uh, you know, it was it was a phenomenal result uh, for for the McLaren team. And I think it was great, too, for Danny, because, I mean, this is a guy that's sorely been lacking some mojo for back, lack of a better term, especially this year. I mean, Renault, I, I thought, was always a bit it, it always smacked a little bit of desperation. I mean, we're just talking about Alex Albon, you know, make a clean break. I mean, Danny decided to make that clean break, get away from Red Bull. And uh, he went over to, to, to Renault instead, which I think a lot of people, including myself, uh, raised their eyebrows and said, Daniel, what are you doing? Is this the right move? I mean, he stuck it out for two seasons. He scored some some good, you know, a couple of podiums with them. I don't know if a Bull ever got that uh, tattoo that uh, he said he was going to. If he didn't, shame on him because a deal's a deal, bro. A deal's a deal. 
a deal's a deal. So, you know, if, uh, you know, Daniel, if that hasn't happened, let us know. We'll take care of Surreal and make sure that he gets inked. Anyways, uh, you know. Surreal, text me. <laughs> yeah, he's going to have to wait till Alex and you sort that business out, first of all. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it was it was a good move to him to go to, to McLaren from uh, Renault. But it was just, it's been... You know, we were talking about how frustrating it has been to watch Aston Martin and and Lance and Sebastian this year. I mean, it's been frustrating to watch Ricardo as well, and just to, the way that he sort of sort of struggled and it looked like there was a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. And then before Italy, it was kind of back to more of the same in Holland, and just the you know they. I mean, both of them didn't really have any pace in Holland. It's done for it. But I don't know where the heck all that speed came from at, at Monza, but it was great to see. And it was good to see Danny win that race. I think that it's been been a long time coming, and I think that it will just really be a boost to, to him. It will be a boost to his season, and then ultimately going into next year as well in his career with McLaren. I think it was a, the perfect result the guy needed. Yeah, the debate that you and I had during the summer break was who would score a, a win first this year? Is it going to be Lando? Is it going to be Carlos? Is Charles going to break through again because he hasn't scored victory since Italy in 19? But ultimately, yeah. surprisingly, it was it was Daniel Ricciardo. And I have to back this up because I think it's good to provide a little bit of context to our listeners. I always think of him as a new driver, but this is a guy that's been in 202 Grand Prix. He's already scored 32 podiums. He's already has scored eight wins. Again, almost all of that with Red Bull. He's raced for HRT, Toro Rosso, Red Bull, Renault, McLaren. Of course, McLaren's his first time really racing with a team powered by anything other than a Renault power unit. But I agree for the 32 year old Australian, this was amazing. And the notes I'd written down was this is why we watch formula one. Mm -hmm. We don't watch formula one to see, to see Max come together with Lewis and hear the team principals bicker for two weeks. We watch (laughs) formula one for moments like this. Yeah. Bridled passion, enjoy a feel-good moment. This is why we're all in it. This is this is the moment that we all want to see. Now, while we're talking about McLaren and we're talking about Daniel Ricardo, two of our mailbag questions were actually specifically related to this. So I okay. thought I would quickly jump ahead and spin these off to you. I have spin thoughts on them, the bro. first one, but I would uh, I would like to ask you this question because I thought this was a really good one. Uh, but 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 let's take a look here. Let me see here. So the first question comes from Bill Jones. There was no doubt that McLaren brought an unbelievable package to Monza. Mm -hmm. But my question is why? What did they change to get the advantage? What insights, adjustments did they make, et cetera? Were they track specific and are they sustainable? So I have some thoughts, but I'm kind of curious on yours. And then the second question here, and this is a really, really, really good question as well is, and this comes from Joe Santucci. A younger Lewis Hamilton is in Lando's position. You know what? Trailing behind, better tires, generally quicker, has better tires than his teammate. Does he take team orders or sit back and take second, or does he go for it? So first question is, what did McLaren do differently? And second was, if we could flash back in time, and it was Lewis chasing teammate Ricardo, does Lewis Lewis go for it? Well, the first one, honestly, I haven't followed up uh, too much on this. I'd love to know what they did to these cars this weekend. The one thing that I really noticed is that, um, you know, how much or how little rear wing everybody was uh, really using at, at Monza. And I think that really had a lot to do with the, the ineffective of the, um, uh, the ineffectiveness of the, uh, the, the DRS system, because when those rear wings were open, 
you know, there wasn't going to be that much of an advantage because, you know, it wasn't like they were, you know, being, you know, really slowing down because of the, uh, you know, the drag on that rear wing anyways. But I don't know what it was. I'd love to know what they did, what, uh, you know, or is it just one of these uh, cases that this car was just, it, it was the right track for this car and it just, um, everything just went together, you know, at, at the right time. As far as the second question from, from Joe, um, I was kind of thinking about this one because I think it might be a situation kind of very Charles Leclerc, Sebastian Vettel-esque. And I think that uh, that Lando, you know, Lando, I think is a good team guy. And I, I think that he would have sat behind him, you know, if he was told to, to hold station. And the only time I think that they would have, um, you know, flip those cars around is if uh, you know there's more threats that Lando was being caught by the car behind him and that perhaps you know if they weren't careful they might lose that place and then you know if Lando's out of the picture then the lead and ultimately the victory might be uh, put at threat but I think as long as um, you know they were both running out there and they weren't uh, being pressured by anyone behind them I think they were content to, to keep them the way that they were and I think Lando would do that for a race maybe two and then after that I think he would start to get impatient very much like we saw with Charles and and Sebastian that first year together Ferrari in 18 because uh, you had Sebastian um, you know he wasn't pacey in Australia and I'm being polite about that and Charles you know he sat behind him but then you got to Bahrain at the next race Charles was uh, you know much faster he was behind Sebastian you know at the start of the race and then I think he was told to stay behind him and I think that uh, you know that lasted about, about what half a lap <laughs> and then Charles ran off into the distance and then if it wasn't for that unfortunate mechanical issue he would have won that race uh, you know I, I mean he's still came home on third in the podium and he was lucky to do so but uh, was um, you know benefited from that bizarre double dnf from both of the renault cars at that time but uh, that's what i think that that's my take yeah and I'll, I'll quickly respond my thought on the first one that lewis hamilton question which i absolutely love i think it depends on who lewis is chasing in that moment if the circumstances are the same as we saw this weekend it was nico he wouldn't wait yeah, if, if it's Nico, no. If it's Fernando <laughs> Alonso in 2007, no. no way. If it's Kovalainen in 08, no way. If it's Daniel Ricciardo, like actually Daniel Ricciardo, and he has that same type of rapport, and it's these circumstances, probably. But I think historically, based on the teammates, Bottas, maybe. But if it's Alonso, no way. If it's Nico, no way. If it's Kovalainen, no way. I think it depends on who that driver is, and it depends on the moment. I think he would have enough respect and courtesy that if he was in this moment, and it was Ricardo in front of him, and it's not compromising his personal championship, I think he sets back and 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 allows, uh, allows Ricardo to enjoy the moment. And just with respect to the other question, I think the question is less about what did they do mechanically that weekend. And I think some people have characterized the win, the one, two as, as fortunate as lucky. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Obviously it was bad luck for Bottas that he had to take the grid penalty because he qualified on the front row. He had to go to the back. So that was beneficial to them. They had a great start, but they were also phenomenal in qualifying. They, they qualified fourth, yeah. fifth. They were just a whisper off of the front row. Um, from a qualifying perspective, they looked great all weekend, but I attribute this as much to Ricardo's growth, um, and the development that, McLaren's put into his car as I do to any specific setup that they had that weekend. And I think now you look at the back half of the season and my prediction during the summer break was that 
Ferrari was going to storm away with third place in the championship. I don't know that that's necessarily the case anymore. You look at you look at Lando Norris. He's had a sensational year. He's got four podiums now. He would have scored significantly more points if not for the retirement in Hungary and that tough finish in Belgium. Mm-hmm. He's on 132 points. He's only nine points behind Valtteri Bottas. He's had a sensational year. And if Daniel Ricciardo can start consistently putting in some top five, some top four podium finishes, this is going to be a team to contend with. And as, as we discussed on the Spaces chat tonight, overwhelmingly, like you have to think that if Ricardo can hook up a really strong final seven or eight Grand Prix, this is a team that could be favored to win a championship next year. So that's, know, right? that's my responses to, uh, to those questions. That's why I keep saying it's going to be fun to watch uh, Ferrari and McLaren battle down the stretch here. Because, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and the one thing that uh, Ferrari's been teasing and threatening that they're going to bring, bring upgrades to the car specifically for the power unit, and it yep. just seems like they're forever coming, and they're, they're still kind of, they seem like they've plateaued. And, uh, you know, if they're going to do anything and and take third of the constructors, I mean, they're going to have to do something and get these parts on the car ASAP because McLaren, I mean, you know, they're they're in good form at the moment. I mean, like you say, I mean, there, there's been some some bumpy patches along the way recently. But, uh, you know, especially after that, uh, you know, that finish at Monza or the whole weekend at Monza, you know, they're, they're going to be very, very enthusiastic and very motivated to, to carry that on. And you know that Lando's got uh, that Valtteri is in his sights. I mean, nine points. I mean, that is that is doable. I mean, I know that uh, that, that Bottas is a pretty consistent driver. He's pretty consistent in, in bringing home points each and every weekend. But uh, if you're Lando Norris, uh, I think you're going to be really targeting that in you know that third place in the drivers' championship because that would be a major career accomplishment for a young guy like Lando. Absolutely agree. Yeah. Absolutely agree. So we've got a couple of mailbag questions. Do okay. we have time for one more story and then mailbag, or do we need to squeeze in another? break to pay some bills hey you know what this is the first show that we've done on our own in in a number of weeks so let, let's just keep, keep keep going if it if it runs a little bit longer then it runs a little bit longer you know we, we've done our obligatory ad break so now this is all just bonus material and everybody can uh All the bills are paid for this week. That's all that matters. (laughs) So final story before we get into just a couple of mailbag questions, because we've already been kind of nibbling away at those as we've gone through this journey of a podcast. But according to Total Wolf, Mm -hmm. nobody is willing to take risks during the sprint qualifying sessions. And this follows a chorus of criticism that we've heard from team principals and drivers and owners about the current sprint qualifying format. And Toto's point is, if I'm a driver and I want my car in one piece for the Grand Prix on Sunday where all the points are, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to take a risk on Saturday for the sake of maybe winning that sprint qualifying session and walking home with a whopping three points. So now that we've had a little bit of time to sit back and reflect mm-hmm. on the second sprint qualifying weekend, we talked a little bit about this a couple of days ago, but what are your thoughts? Is is Toto right? Are the Is the upside of the sprint qualifying session not enough to encourage racing behavior from the drivers? Yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, Toto's, um, I, I think he's right on this one. I, and I really like the concept of a sprint qualifying. I just don't know what the correct, you know, mix of ingredients is to get it, get it really, you know, where it needs to be to make it exciting. Because 
I completely spaced on the fact that uh, that uh, Voltaire was going to be taking that grid penalty, and I was, right. and it took me a couple of laps to clue in. And I thought, well, you know, why is Max not trying to to to, to pass him? You know, he could do that. He can, you know, he can get by Voltaire. You know, perhaps you know he'll take the pole. He'll get the extra points which he needs. And I was just like, then I realized he doesn't need to pass him because he can just sit behind him and he's still going to start on pole. So he's got no motivation to to do so. And uh, yeah, I mean, the the risk versus rewards calculation, it just, uh, it the, the payoff isn't there yet. And that's why I, I think that they need to sit down and think about it and come up with something that can really make it attractive for these guys to go out and, and race on the weekend and, and, and make it worthwhile. I mean, I have no problem with the existing qualifying format that's been in place for what, 20 years now. I, I think that it works. I mean, you know, the, the, the three qualifying sessions and the top 10 shootout, I mean, it's, it's delivered plenty of excitement uh, over the years. And I was willing to maybe sit back and, and, and just maybe reflect more on the the sprint qualifying after Monza. I like what we saw at uh, at Silverstone a number of weeks ago. But yeah, now that I've seen it twice, I like it, but it's 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 just not quite there. And and that's why it's going to take I think a real a real sit down of all the parties involved and a real I, I think a real transparent discussion from from all the stakeholders involved to 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 really hammer this out to, to okay this is what we need it to be this is what we need to do to make it exciting or you know it was worth a try but you know what ultimately it's it's not going to deliver and then you know let's let maybe let's try and generate excitement in some other way yeah i i'm happy that formula 1's in a position where they are flexible and eager enough to try some new things i think they're still something here. And we all know that at the end of the day, the reason Formula One is doing this is not necessarily to spice up the championship. It's to grow the value of the sport because you can ultimately charge your TV network partners more and you can charge more for tickets on a Grand Prix weekend where you have a sprint qualifying session. And in term, and in turn, this, the, those that are paying for the race sanctioning fees can ultimately have the benefit or the privilege of paying more to Formula One for hosting one of these weekends. My thought is the concept of sprint qualifying is confusing. It it waters down the value of qualifying. It it has an impact on the historical legacy of the sport because I think for me as a historian and for somebody that's really keen to build on that narrative that Formula One history is relevant and it's important, it takes away from the polls that so many people have scored years before. To me, I still like the idea of doing this four times a year. It's got to be the right tracks, the right places. But to me, a perfect weekend is you roll in on Friday, you have free practice one in the morning, and then you have what I call a super qualifying session in the evening. Mm -hmm. And super qualifying sets the grid for Saturday, and it sets the grid for Sunday. Saturday morning, you have free practice two, and then you have a sprint race, not this BS sprint qualifying nonsense. You have a sprint race on Saturday that's worth half points. You make it meaningful for the drivers. There's something to race for. And then on Sunday, you have the Grand Prix. So when you go into this weekend, you have a traditional qualifying session, but it's ultra important because it's going to set the grid for not just the Grand Prix, but for the sprint race. And then the sprint race is that much more meaningful because there's half points available. And then 
wow, this is a, a big time weekend that can really ch- shape the championship because there's so many points available. When you're talking about three points, you're talking about two points, you're talking about one point. I get it. A championship can be decided by three points, but that's not that's not changing necessarily the way these drivers are approaching sprint qualifying. To me, it's got to be more meaty. It's got to be more meaningful. I like the structural concept, but I think there's still some things they can do here to improve it. Cool. Yeah. I had nothing further to add. It, it definitely needs uh, some tweaking, but I'm still open to the concept. I still like it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people criticize us for being old and stuck in our ways, but I don't necessarily <laughs> think that's I don't necessarily think that's the case. So I've got a question for you. So okay. quickly jumping into a couple of mailbag questions. Sure. Carlos Van Carlos, a question. Is the success of Red Bull more in spite of itself? rather than as a result of being a top-to-bottom, well-run organization? What do you think? That is a great question because, you know, publicly, I mean, Red Bull as a brand is, um, advertising is almost, I, I mean, their, their advertising is like a thing. I mean, it's, uh, you know, they, they really do a good job of pr- promoting themselves. And I don't want to say that their success is in spite of themselves, because I think that the, um, you know, the, the vocal minority that sometimes generate the headlines for all the wrong reasons might take a little bit of the oomph and the credit away from all the, the, the hardworking people behind the scenes in the design office, in the factory and, you know, all the mechanics and all that. So I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to take away from, you know, what the the anonymous people, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, but the the people that we don't see popping up in in the media, especially in the aftermath of a, uh, you know, a a controversial moment like we saw at Silverstone, where Red Bull was making headlines for all the wrong reasons, and it generated all the wrong reactions from all the wrong people, right? Right. And I mean, the, the the fact is you don't win races. And I know going back to their championship years is it's, it's, it's a little while ago. Let's, let's put it that way, but that just didn't happen by accident. And I mean, to win a championship is not uh, something that just happens, you know, by accident. I mean, to win one championship is, you know, quite a feat to win several or more championships is, is really, really Phenomenal. I mean, that that uh, point was driven home again in the Schumacher documentary. I mean, before we had Mercedes, we had Red Bull. I mean, they ran off four consecutive titles from 10 to 13. Before them, we saw Ferrari run off that run of titles in the late 90s and early noughties. I mean, we saw it with McLaren. I mean, there, there's plenty of um, uh, examples throughout uh, history. And, and um, you know, I think it's a great question. I, I think it's very astute and, uh, you know, good observation by, by Carlos. And that's that's my take on it. I don't think we should let the vocal minority take away the the, the work of many hundreds of people, the good work of many hundreds yeah. of people at Milton Keynes. Yeah, totally agree. I I was greatly displeased with the PR campaign that was spun up after Silverstone. I, I thought it was a bad look for Formula One. I yep. thought it reflected badly on Christian Horner. I thought it looked especially bad on Helmut Marco because of some of the clearly intentionally inflammatory comments that they were making, which to your point provoked a segment of the global audience that really has no business commenting on or being a part of the Formula One community. But to your point as well, from a Red Bull perspective, they have an 
unlimited, unsatiable appetite for investing in their Formula One project. They always have. They own two teams. They have one of the richest drivers academies in all of motorsports. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have a fantastic facility in Milton Keynes. They have fantastic personnel. They do a great job of recruiting exceptionally talented people away from other teams, which actually links into a question which we'll speak to in a couple of seconds. And they were willing to take on a power unit. When, When Honda walked away, they could just as easily have said, okay, bye, and gone and knocked on the door with Renault and said, hey, do you want to try this broken relationship again? And they didn't do that. They decided, hey, we feel confident enough in our abilities and our finances that we're going to start being a works manufacturer for all intents and purposes. So Mm -hmm. I think it's a really great question. And I think it comes from a place where a lot of fans are a little bit frustrated with their conduct over the course of the last few weeks and months. And I think that's why I was so greatly relieved that we didn't see that same toxicity spill out after after the most recent Grand Prix. So that said, this kind of ties into another question I have for you. And this comes from Emmanuel. And his question is, is it possible that the problem the Mercedes team are experiencing right now are due to some of their staff having moved to Red Bull? Great question. Possibly. You know, uh, I I think that any time that uh, you, I mean, let's face it, I mean, the pool of uh, people that uh, are qualified and smart enough and and want to work in Formula One is pretty small. You know, I mean, there there are plenty of smart people out there, but the people that have, you know, the skill set to work within Formula One, you know, that's, that's got to be, you know, a pretty niche you know, uh, markets or a group of people, small group of people, right? So I think any time, and despite total sort of downplaying it, it's got to hurt. I mean, I know that they they have the, you know, I know that they have the the ability to recruit other people and and bring other people in, maybe reorganize and stuff like that. But, you know, it it can't uh, be easy. But also you have to remember that uh, Mercedes did, you know, come out the wrong side on the arrow regs from from this season as well, which uh, you know Aston Martin also uh, have been suffering with uh, all year as well. So, I think it's it's a combination of things, and um, I wouldn't be willing to put it down to just one factor. But certainly, I think that the the loss of uh, you know brain power like that is going to impact a team, especially when you get several f- key figures moving over. Plus, just the uh, I guess the psychological blow of le- losing good people to the guys in the garage next to you that you're trying to beat every weekend. I think that's the bigger piece here, right? Which is the the mental psychological battle that yeah. they now move 20 minutes down the road from Brackley to your principal rival at Milton Keynes. And we're so terrible. We talk about all these places as if the audience knows where they are. And really we don't unless we go to a map. So I promise, I and I've been meaning to do this for a while, I mean to create and print a map of the Power Valley part of the UK just mm-hmm. to kind of help visualize that, hey, this is where Mercedes is based and this is where Aston Martin is based and this is Milton Keynes are base just so everyone can get a sense of how closely integrated the supply chains and those teams are so i promise i'll do that but i think on this question psychologically i think it's a big blow i don't know that they could have provided any meaningful value i think in formula one 
advancement and development and innovation are often a slow burn. It's not something that can be turned mm-hmm. around particularly quickly. So you can sure. bring on staff, but their ability to influence a technology is something that might take six or 12 or 18 months. So while they may have had some impact this year, yes, but I would say that most of the value that they're going to show will be in the 2022 car. And I would be very surprised if they were involved with the 2021 car at all, simply because there's no reciprocal value in them investing their time in that car now because it's going to be gone next year. Mm-hmm. I would suspect they're all working towards 2022. So two more, well, actually one comment and then one final question. So this this comment comes from Zach and it I had to read it a couple of times. Then once I finally understood what he was meaning, I got a really good chuckle. But Zach says, you know, I have to question the validity of your claim to being Canadian. We tend to claim to be everything. Dutch, British, American, <laughs> Canadian, Welsh, Scottish, whatever fits the narrative of the episode. But you, you know, I have to, Yeah, exactly. You know, I have to question the validity of your claim to being Canadian when I watch a video podcast for the first time. And for those of you that don't know, all of our podcasts are streamed live. We do this off the cuff. We don't edit. We don't pause. We don't go back and record. All of this is live. You hear it as we record it. But he says, I went to watch a video pod for the first time and y'all's heads don't leave your mouths when you talk. like, (laughs) What does he mean? And then it finally clued in. He was referring to how Canadians are portrayed on that classic, classic (laughs) Comedy Central program, South Park. Well, so just to to, to that, we're going to have T and P t-shirts uh, for next week i'll you know i don't know do you want to be terrence or do you want to be Philip? <laughs> <laughs> oh i like I it. it i love it and then the final question and this is going to go to jack because this is a great question we have talked about this before will the new 2022 f1 cars have drs and by the way i apologize jack sent me these questions three months ago and i missed them so i'm circling back now but will the new 2022 f1 cars have drs the spoilers will be very different on the new car i don't know if they would affect how drs will be implemented implemented in racing. So I'll quickly take this one. Yes, we know that at least for 2022, DRS will be back. It will be a milder, more moderate version than we're used to today. Zach Brown himself has commented on how important it is for F1 to carry this technology over for 2022. As confident as the FIA is, as confident as the teams are, as confident as Formula One is, is that the new aerodynamics are going to make passing better because the new rear wings in particular will be pushing that dirty air up as opposed to back at the trailing car, they're not fully confident. So they're going to carry DRS over for at least one year as just as a, a what if, a backup, an emergency precaution. So it's going to be there. It won't be as influential in terms of uh, creating some additional horsepower or some additional speed, but it will be there for at least one more year simply because they want to be sure that they've hit the mark with that new arrow philosophy before they discard it. Because the fear would be you discard it, the new arrow doesn't turn out the way you expect it to be, and maybe racing is actually worse next year. So yeah, great question. It is, you know, and I think that's one fascinating thing, just the way that things are just uh, so so they're going to change so much for next year. It's just like, what is going to be different? What is going to be the same? What's going to be held over? Is it still going to be, uh, you know, is it going to have the same effect? And I think that's why next year is just so fascinating because it really is the, the, the big unknown. And I'm already, you know, looking at my calendar about, you know, four and a half, five months from now, when we get the traditional car releases at the beginning of uh, February around, around Valentine's day or just uh, there or thereabouts, 
you know, because, you know, that first car launch, whoever does it, you know, it'll probably be one of the you know smaller teams. I mean, you know, you know, Twitter is going to explode that day. It's going to be all over the different, uh, you know, F1 websites. Everybody's going to be talking about it. And then the second team to uh, launch their car is going to generate a lot of discussion because it's either, hey, it's pretty similar to the, you know, team you know, Team X or is completely different or why do these cars look almost identical to last year's? It's not, uh, you know, anywhere close to the, you know, the, the prototype that F1 came out with last summer. So it's, a, it's really cool. Really looking forward to that. All right. Well, I just want to give a, a couple of shout outs uh, to, you know, um, got uh, in the in the mailbag. I uh, just want to say, uh, you know, thanks for the messages uh, to Thomas Beto, uh, Chuck3202, The Birds, Randall Rothbart, Ryan Baco, Joel Plurda, and JJ in Houston. And then uh, finally, Donna B in Irmo, South Carolina. Uh, she had to say, hi, hi, guys. Love your podcast. I'm a DTS new F1 fan. I enjoyed your F1 uh, merch discussion uh, today. I'm apologize she sent this about a week ago i found some uh cool f1 merch on redbubble here's a link to a notebook i gave and got to a i gave to a friend of mine and it's kind of cool the 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 notebook has like all the track layouts like the schematics of Ethan, and it's like the schedule and all of them uh she says uh when i was there i just caved and bought uh, the box to box box t-shirt last week i got a red bull t-shirt off the f1 site and then uh i think uh she said it was kind of cool to get the uh you know the uh, the, the schedule even though she she says even though that the schedule's probably changed <laughs> some of the tracks that are on the cover probably aren't there anymore but uh you know thanks guys uh, sometimes we don't always get a chance to read them we don't always get a chance to reply to them but we do read them all and uh, we love hearing from you, regardless if you're like Donna in South Carolina or you're JJ in Houston or anywhere else. I mean, we get uh, messages from all over, all four corners of the world. And that's uh, really cool to be part of the global F1 community. One last comment. And we don't normally do this, but I'm going to ask today just because I, I think uh, I think people enjoy the show and I think you appreciate what we're doing here. Two asks, please Give us a follow on Twitter. We we love everyone that joins. We reach out personally to every single person that follows us. And two, if you follow us on Spotify, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, it would mean the world to us. If you can go and give us a review, put your comments in, share your thoughts. Honest, I don't care what the score is. We just love to get that feedback and to see it posted. So if you love the show and you enjoy what we're doing, please take a moment, go and give us a review, give us a three-star review, maybe a five-star review if you're feeling generous. We would really, really, really love if you can do that for us. And we don't ask often, but if that's something, if you've made it through an hour 50 of this podcast, I presume you really love what we're doing here. So if you can go and give us a review and a score, that would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I personally, I tuned out after about 15 minutes. So for Yeah, your performance made that pretty clear. <laughs> uh, you know, yes, well, uh, th- thanks for shattering my, uh, <laughs> my popping my bubble this late in the show, but I guess I set myself up for that one. But but anyways, yeah, thank you guys uh, for downloading, listening to the show. Thank you for for getting in touch. As uh, Mark said, uh, you know, thank you, uh, you know, for for being part of the this community, and uh, we really do uh, enjoy it. And uh, that's uh, basically it uh, for this week. If uh, you do want to get in touch, uh, by all means, uh, do so. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. That's the best place uh, to get in touch uh, at Scootery F1 Pod, and you can also follow and get uh, or join in on the uh, Spaces chats on Thursday nights. You can also email us. At at scooteryfunpod at gmail.com. And that's a wrap. No race this weekend. So we'll be back on Monday night, not Sunday night, for uh, one of two shows uh, next week. And with that, I'm going to dunk my arm in the pudding, as is tradition. 
and say thank you for listening. Have a great weekend and we'll talk to you again soon. And by the way, Mark, that was a South Park reference. Take care, guys. Bye for now.